Hello everyone and welcome back to Dolly Back, the film podcast where we indulge and defend our favorite movies, whether they're beloved classics, forgotten gems, or misunderstood masterpieces. My name is Eric Meyerhofer and with me to talk about a collective favorite of ours, which seems to be a running theme for this pod, as always, is Krishiv Parmar. This is a special episode. You know, I know I, I think probably, it is. I probably preface every episode with that just because of how in love we are with these films. But these filmmakers, they genuinely mean quite a lot to us. So it's a privilege to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you better you better introduce our movie for this week then, if you're going to give them this introduction. Well, this week we're tackling Speed Racer, the adaptation of the anime by the Wachowskis, Lily and Lana. You know, you guys are probably already familiar with them from the Matrix movies, but. Honestly, man, like as much as I love the first Matrix, like they have taken it up to 11 in this film. I'm sure everyone can agree visually, but even just narratively, the arrangement of ideology here, just from capital to the way Buddhist mythology, how it transforms our perception. Like you guys can probably tell I'm super excited to get in all of this because all of my thoughts are all disorganized. But yeah, they're so, it's just chock full. And I'm so excited to get into it today for sure. Now, beyond the decade, I mean, I don't know if this is a hot take, but I think we can, we can maybe come to an agreement on this being like maybe the greatest comic manga adaptation that there's ever been and i think a part of the reason is that they dedicate themselves to a very distinct aesthetic palette and they're very very unwavering and i think and and this was part of the reason why this film was received kind of negatively you know like people cite this movie as being like a headache to watch and i don't blame people that think that i don't agree because I think that it's, I, it's impossible for me to watch this film and not be completely consumed by its visuals. I think to watch something like this completely drenched in this acid wash color is, is beyond anything that visu- the blockbusters are willing to do visually nowadays even. And I think nowadays even more. Because this movie turns 14 this year, which is insane to me. Because I remember renting this at my, my local, like, uh, Canadian blockbuster. I don't even know if we had blockbuster <laughs> in my town or something like that, but I rented it and I watched it four times in a day or something like that because it was just such an amazing movie. But getting into it, I think a, a good jumping off point may, might be to start with this the situation that the Wachowskis find themselves in mid 2000s, you know, this middle of the road decade where they're coming off of doing what I think is one of the greatest trilogies. Uh, the Matrix trilogy. Now, obviously, I think I'll, there's a lot of division between whether or not people think Reloaded and especially Revolutions are, are good movies. Numbers-wise, Revolutions did not do well at all. It was largely a critical and a, more importantly, commercial failure. So three years go by, 2006 rolls around, and the Alan Moore adaptation of V for Vendetta comes out. Now, have you seen V for Vendetta? Yeah, I saw it in high school. Yeah, pretty similar yeah. vibe to The Matrix. I was right on board even then. I I did. I actually watched it in high school too. I think that's definitely like a high school canon film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's like it's like the the prenatal film, bro. Sort of like <laughs> text, right? Yeah. But they don't direct this movie. They write this movie. James McTeague is brought on to direct this. I'm pretty sure in his debut. And V for Vendetta is successful. There are, are, you know, typical Wachowski influences and muses in this, you know, Hugo Weaving is in this, just chewing through dialogue like he does best. But Village Roadshow, who produced all of the Matrix films, as well as produced Speed Racer, produced 
V for Vendetta. Now, I don't know if this was a situation of the Wachowskis getting the proposition of directing V for Vendetta and turning it down, or whether or not they weren't, and this was more so a, you have to prove it again that you've got it. Because they took revolutions in a very, very distinct direction that not a lot of people were on board with, and it didn't translate to dollars, which, you know, as we get into with the capital ideologies of Speed Racer, kind of is power, right? Yeah. So they write V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta is very successful, or it's moderately successful, I think, for a, a kind of fringe comic book yeah. adaptation, something that's not, you know, a, a direct Marvel or DC IP. I think it also kind of, you know, sort of paved the way for the Watchmen adaptation to go forward. Just the idea that Moore's work was like, it, it was out there, people were starting to discover him, so, yeah. I agree. I agree completely, especially because I think that it motivated this kind of interest in adult comics. You know, you have Watchmen and you have, you know, even Watchmen got made into the uh, the Lindelof um, yeah, yeah, series yeah. not even like three three uh, years ago, which was pretty good. I watched that as it was airing. But back to the Wachowskis because that's the matter at hand. Two years after V for Vendetta, they release this, I think, $120 million film. You know, we're talking a number that is, I want to say, maybe even more than double what the original Matrix's budget was. And Speed Racer is a commercial failure. I mean, a failure that made $93 million at the box office is still a failure when it, it costs over hundred, probably over $120 million to make. But that doesn't mean it's a bad movie, obviously, or else we wouldn't have a podcast. So why is this movie good? I, I, think, I think the one thing that I will say, and, and I don't think anybody ha- has really tried to do it, and the more we the deeper we get into the 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 sludge of MCU adaptations is the Wachowskis did something in taking a visually stylistic source text and and equating it to an equally as visually trailblazing film that people weren't necessarily ready for in 2008 especially compared to the other comic book giant of 2008 like how can anybody really compare Speed Racer to what was this monumental film, The Dark Knight. But The Dark Knight is operating within this very succinct visual realm where it's just very, very dark and very great because it's pulling from these noir, these neo-noir and thriller inspirations, you know, like the Michael Manns of the world. And, and this is what Nolan is doing. Whereas well, the Wachowskis are wearing Andy Warhol on their sleeve. So what, what do you think? I mean, I think maybe a really like good point to start with is just that line they had on the inspiration, like for the the sort of aesthetics of the film. They said, you know, we're very visual, like thinking people. I wish I could link the quote through the podcast, but it's out there. Trust me. The idea that when you go to a museum, you can go to these different exhibits, you know, at will and everything looks so different from each other. But, you know, for mainstream cinema, because it's so deeply imbricated with capital, there's a tendency conform to the sort of formalist idea of what blockbuster films should look like, the way the editing works, just so the audience doesn't feel otherwise lost or disoriented. And like you said, you know, Nolan making The Dark Knight, it's not like he could dive completely into this, you know, David Mazzuchelli, Frank Miller kind of surrealist illustration, right? He has to pull, I guess, from Michael Mann. You know, he has to pull from Heat. He has to get all these little, just has to conglomerate all these old influences he has through sort of this kind of cinematic education but the Wachowskis naturally they're pulling from anime right I think the one scene you could definitely say like it's right there they wear it on their sleeve I think Sparky gets a gun pointed at his nose he does this very classic pose where he puts his hand straight up in the air 
you're just watching that you see like a very direct visual translation there's no real consideration for better or worse whether it looks good in live action i think it looks great but the idea that you know that the filmmaker can go there and have no regard for how motion works in live action i think that's wonderful obviously you take you know these influences like andy warhol you know maybe even jackson pollock like at the end of the race he's swerving off the track you see the trail behind him sort of turn in this kind of liquid kind of multicolored acid trip you're just conglomerating all these and it doesn't feel like incoherent there's a definite there's a definite conscious choice to include all these influences but yeah what you have is a very distinct desire to just break through this formalist shot reverse shot kind of structure of filmmaking right no you're totally right and i think overall if if we had to kind of weave this common thread throughout the wachowski's filmography it's this this uphill battle against a sort of visual and also ideological hegemony that reigns over the popular cinema filmmaking core they make bound in 1996 which was largely this independent hit but then their their sophomore feature was the matrix and then we get, we're we're 9 years away from that and they make Speed Racer well within the studio system. This this film was was produced, like I said, by Village Roadshow, and it was distributed by Warner Brothers. Like you don't really get much bigger than a Warner Brothers distribution. Yeah. It's given 120 million dollars, but they nevertheless are always fighting against these corporate, these capital influenced ideologies. This is something that that Lana does especially. In Resurrections, and I, I won't, you know, I don't. Have you even seen Resurrections? I don't want to get I into too much. I still need to catch up for sure. I yeah, know that so makes my sort of earlier statement ring kind of hollow, but yeah, trust me, I'll, I'll get on that for sure. No Resurrections spoilers. Uh, the only thing I will say is that what, going back after seeing Resurrections and watching Speed Racer again, you know, the evidence has always been there. Royalton is very much this caricature villain, but he doesn't say anything wrong. What he says is morally wrong, and you know, obviously, it, it goes against the ideology that we're fighting with speed for, uh, or against, I should say, or for. But he's he's not saying anything that's untruthful. He says money, like the insurmountable might of money, like it's it always comes down to capital. And when you're dealing with films that require hundreds of million dollars to produce, you have to kind of submit yourself to this in a way. But I just can't not respect the Wachowskis in the fact that they get this budget and they're like, no, we're going to make this we're going to make this stylistic fuck you to every single boring visual gray matter that exists on on cinema screens. Now, there isn't there is not a single scene of this movie that doesn't have a drop of color. There's no gray. There's no there's just no sludge. There's no there's previs, but it's not like we're not watching a film get fabricated in in a in a factory and planned in a laboratory exactly the way that Royalton tries to make cars the Wachowskis in making Speed Racer are very much attacking a visual style the same way that the Racer family builds the Mach 5 at the end yeah you know they do it they do it better they do it quicker and they just it's just it makes for such an amazing movie but enough about this kind of industry influenced crusade against popular filmmaking let's I, I, let's just talk about the visuals of this movie because i feel like we could go on and on and on what what do you think is this is this standout like visual thesis that they have because there's just so many words that you could use to describe what it is they're doing like you know with form style aesthetic so you know what do, what do you think 
I guess sort of revisiting comic book heritage I brought up for like Dark Knight. I'm not sure how like explicit it is here, but I think one thing that's worth pointing out, like this is very much, you know, a kid's film, a family film. And I think like even more impressively, like it treats its child audience with genuine respect. The way like the way it tries to showcase the race, at least, right? You have these transparent kind of diagrams of the mountain as they're going through the Casa Cristo race. And you see these like little dots going down, you know, the sort of, you know, the map. And like just the way that it sort of tries to put that out there, very non-linear terms, right? Like you obviously have this cross-cutting when you're inside the race between Racer X, Trixie, and Speed. And instead of like doing these shot reverse shots, like you mentioned, they're total oneers, right? Obviously, yeah, yeah. I, t- I texted you that before. Yeah, I was exactly. Like, I, was, I was so completely blown away by this because we're covering literal kilometers of film space. Yeah. And they're digitally weaving together these shots and just... At like the speed of sound they're moving between these cars, you know, yeah. they're, they they realize that like they have to, they have to show space as this, this traversable entity that you need to do fast. Like you need to go fast to get through it. They, and, and they've specifically said they tried to avoid typical cutting because it doesn't supplement the style that is required for this type of movie. Like the syntax I, sort of like flows differently, right? Like the whole ex- yeah. exactly, and and you could even say that like like typical syntax is just completely thrown out the window. If you look at the origin of say like the wipe, and if you go to like the pioneers of the optical printer, or even into their popular use like Kurosawa, we're not even seeing typical wipes used as suture in this case. It's not like Lucas wiping from Tatooine to the Death Star. They're using these ephemeral kind of phantasms of people speaking to unveil thoughts as actions and they wipe from place to place but there's no there's no border there's no edge of a frame it's all covered up yeah right like this film this film is two hours and like 14 minutes long but it's not like this linear kind of timeline that you can you can travel on it's this muddled like space time that you just kind of have to like let run its course yeah and sort of going back to like the idea of like a kid's film i think the point i was trying to make there was you know with grant morrison you know there's this excellent quote he says i think children don't struggle with fiction but adults do there has to be this very rational positivist kind of based understanding of how the events in a story are unfolding you know with a kid because i can definitely recollect when i first saw the film i rented from a library kind of similar to you getting from a blockbuster but it made complete sense to me like i did not have i didn't have difficulty keeping up you know with the action i didn't need an explanation for why the jumping jacks worked or why people got ejected out of the cockpit or why the camera needed to pan between them like it was all very seamless for me the idea that there's a film other that treated the audience with respect and it wasn't this kind of whedon style oh so that happened kind of gag thrown in there to sort of diffuse the kind of tension you have or treated seriously that was so refreshing and even coming back to the film now you know i don't want to you know sort of go after the main punching bag i think you know that's kind of been done to death, but it is refreshing. I think that's undeniable for sure that a filmmaker would approach material but sort of like a video game or anime treated very sincerely. No, and I think sincere endearing is such a, a commonality that this this film has. And it's also something that it kind of shares with Throwdown and what we were saying before about how a filmmaker like Johnny Toe is unveiling this this story in the most endearing melodramatic way possible and the same thing happens in speed racer you know lon and lily are not taking this subject matter 
seriously like I think a lot of other filmmakers would. And I think in an era where we see audiences en masse struggling and clamoring that all they want is like these comic books that are serious, you know, the success of stuff like the Dark Knight trilogy and the success of things like like Logan in comparison to this very SNL light comedy that we're seeing in the uh, on the other side of the spectrum doesn't really leave room for this endearingly sweet candy shell sort of comedy and and lightheartedness. Yeah. A lot of people choose to rag on Spritel and Chim Chim. And it's like it's a it's a kid. Like he he is the audience watching this film. He's watching these machines make cars and he's he's seeing all of these racetracks and these colors and these racers fly by for the first time. He's exactly the same way as me when I was nine years old and this movie came out. I don't know how you can dislike something like that. And the same thing goes for uh, some of the the oneers in this movie. You know, the Nanja line when when the racers get <laughs> yeah. at- when when the racers get attacked by by ninjas and they're like, "Was that a ninja?" And then John Goodman, just perfect line read, says it was an, more like a Nanja. Terrible it's passes sh- for a ninja these days. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. And it's not like I don't groan. I don't groan like I do some of the jokes in newer movies because the movie knows exactly what kind of line it's delivering. And John Goodman knows exactly what kind of line it's delivering. Pops Racer is the exact type of person you would expect to say that sort of thing. And it's the exact type of universe you'd expect a joke like that to land. And people would be like, oh, true. Very true, Pops. And even, oh, sorry. Keep no, you bed. go. You no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Now, just adding on to that, I mean, like, thank God we had we got Sarandon and Christina Ritchie. Like, I'm definitely familiar with Ritchie of Buffalo '66. She plays com- like completely different character in that film. But like, just a light delivery of Cool Beans. Like, how can you not? Yes. Sort of be in love with that, right? Come on. Like, like, like the the first time she meets Pops and Rex, and they have that bomb, and then Rex like shoves it in, speeds little go kart, and and puts it, reverses it on <laughs> under the yeah. road. This like eight year old girl's like sees an explosion. She's like, "Cool beans." It's you know, it's so funny. It's this, it's this universe where all of these characters are just always in search uh, of this this adrenaline rush. They're always looking for the next race. They're always looking in one way or another how how they can go faster and how they can proceed through this this corporate this corporate nightmare. I guess and and I liked in Kale Keegan's chapter in his book on the Wachowskis filmography likens a lot of the digital exteriors and interiors and just like these digital environments to be Jetson-like. And what we're viewing is kind of this post non, sorry, post nuclear, but like not necessarily because it's almost like this American society mid-century that would exist if they had invested all of their money into vehicles instead of into the nuclear bomb yeah, or into warmongering, you know, like we're watching this completely this complete digital facade of an exterior like the the grass is radioactive green and every single car is a different shade of crimson or yellow or just the brightest blue and nobody wears a single piece of gray clothing unless they're a bad guy or something like that right color dominates in this world because it has to and everybody has to have this idiosyncratic look to them visually you have to occupy your own digital identity that your own visual identity on top of that it's interesting you mentioned the kind of dress or mise-en-scene 
you know, focus on color identity. Because obviously you have Racer X. He's very much this neutral, immovable figure. He has his black and white. But he's not revealing anything. Obviously, you know, on deliberately on purpose. He's meant to be this sort of figure of mystique. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film, please come back and check it out. But yeah, he's Rex, right? So he's, he's Speed's brother. That's the whole, that's the big reveal, which we'll definitely get into later, you know, in the context of... You know, Kale Keegan's article. I thought he did a brilliant sort of analysis, retrospectively, in comparison with the rest of the Wachowski's filmography. But yeah, just, you know, the attention to how, like, Racer X really pops off every scene he's in just because of, you know, that one design decision that they've made. You know, everything around him is so acid pop saturated. And you have this someone who's just completely, you know, he's almost a monolith to it. Like, nothing phases him. He's seen it all. You know, you get that just from that one sort of color choice, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, he's like this, he, he's this shadow, you know, he's this, like you said, this monolith, this, um, this enigma that exists in a, in a, an acid wash world, but he kind of refuses to align with, with any sort of thing because, because he was Rex, he's, he's detached himself yeah. from this ideological kind of worldview. But I do, if we're talking visuals, we got, I, I really want to talk about the, the Grand Prix before we get into sort of any, any more analysis, because oh, yeah. I think, and I said this in my letterbox review, but the Grand Prix stands as such an insane digital set piece. I don't think really anybody has tried anything like that the entire time. It's just, it's like 15 minutes and my, my cheeks hurt by the end of it because I was smiling the entire time. Yeah. You know, like from the beginning speed, he's, he's in this he kind of like walks to the light at the end of the tunnel to get to, to get to the racetrack. Like this is very much him, you know, passing from world to world, the, the racetrack in every single scenario of all the three races, I think that happen or four races that happen in this film. They're all the, these like purgatory. There are these purgatorial spaces where time stands still. And all that matters is racing. All that matters is listening, right? Like we get, we get the, the, the perspectives of, of spectators and they, represent our emotions as speed is racing but for him and for the other racers this is very much a this bodily experience that they they like that they have to experience sorry to reiterate the same word twice but you know out of time and out of space yeah and to dominate that with such an an immense visual aesthetic is a design choice that i don't think a lot of people would would try because it would it would i think in their minds take away from some more uh, narrative weight but like the narrative weight is the visual is the visuals of the scene okay look i know you know people aren't a fan of this whole kind of basic film theory you know you start the movie with the same sequence as you end it with but i'm sorry like just to sort of kind of saccharine you know, naive sort of decision just to include that in the film you know just going back to Royalton's line the wachowski's they know what they're doing. The whole poor naive Trump monologue, they know like that is the kind of expression every, you know, film executive probably shoots down some of their ideas with. So here's obviously, you know, big middle finger to that flash forward, maybe not the most revolutionary technique in montage. But when you have, when you're sort of paralleling the end sort of the Grand Prix at the same location, I think it's called the Thunderdome. I'm not. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah the, the Thunderdome, the right? Thunderdome. Yeah. And he's practicing there at the beginning. Or of the Thunder, film. Thunderhead, I think. Oh, Thunderhead. Thunderhead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's chasing his brother's ghost. Right. And obviously you come back to the same location. He's not just chasing Rex. This is someone who's deciding right then and there why he's racing. He's, he's, he's chasing his own after image. Yeah. Too. Like he, he's he's chasing like a version of himself that that exists always ahead of him. 
Yeah, he's exactly. he's racing against himself, you know. I, I, and, I, and not to cut you off, but I just wanted to interject this a little bit. Like his his conversation with Rex when Rex comes to see him at Thunderhead after learning of their betrayal. I'm pretty sure from Togokan. Yeah, you know, he says the, he says the line. He says, "You don't get into a T180 because you're a driver. You do it because you're driven." Yeah, that's all that this movie's about. It's about being driven. It's about this mo this insurmountable motivation that nobody else can understand but yourself. Yeah. Anyways, continue. Oh, yeah. And I just want to sort of like go back to the Matrix, right? I think you can see the sort of trappings of this religious imagery deployed to sort of show this cyclical kind of conflict that we have against this hegemonic kind of capital process, right? Like obviously in the Matrix, you have, it's a lot more blatant. You have Neo, you know, he literally has to bend the world around him and learn, like see past the Matrix in a sense. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that in the best possible terms, but that is sort of what happens at the climax of the first film. And here, you know, surprisingly, it's in a much more like less literal sense. One scene I'm really taken by, it's not even in the Grand Prix, but he's talking to Spritel and he hears, you know, his past images sort of words. He's like, can I go with you, Rex? And, you know, he's very aware of the parallels going on between him and Rex right there. And in a very self-aware fashion, you'll understand when it's your turn. You're obviously illustrating that there's a cycle, not only to the sort of familial kind of discord that they have, you know, the cycle that they have to break, you know, which he does by, you know, winning the Grand Prix, you know, he's reunited with his family at the end. But, you know, that there's a structure that is struggling, which is sort of royalty and the WRL, which they're trying to sort of shatter. And just, you know, how perception you sort of goes with that kind of enlightenment, right? You know, in the Matrix, you know, the whole there is no spoon, light and matter just bend around him. And by the end of the Grand Prix, form and shapes, like, they don't matter. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm, again, I really don't know how to put this into, like, words. You really have to see it just to be able to process it. But I mentioned earlier, he's spinning past the road. It turns into, like, this watercolor kind of paint swirl. He throws a car, he throws the cards, you know, onto the sideline. I mean, there's a common effect in the film. I think it's a Casa Cristo race, too. But there's, like, a whole pillar of, like, effects, right? There's an electric pillar here that trails towards the finish line. And then it just captures the entire screen you know Mm -hmm. the lights even again there's so much to talk about here but just the way the lights work what i think the wachowskis introduce a kind of you know sort of tilt shift right and you get like these you know the scenes with trixie you have the flowers or the lights are turning into hearts or you know when the cameras are flashing you get these perfect circles or images you know not Mm -hmm. not entirely you know dissimilar to anime or comic book kind of imagery right like, again, that was probably a really scattershot sort of <laughs> description of the Grand Prix, but all of those things just congeal at the perfect moment. It's a fa- fascinating way to work inside the blockbuster machine and put that out there. Yeah. So there's there, there's a bunch of things that you said that I, I really want to like go more my into. Bad, no, no, you brought, and I really hope that everybody listening is getting, if they haven't seen the movie, is getting an idea as to how much this, this movie invests into its visuals. But the first thing that I wanted to talk about is the one spe- scene specific to the Grand Prix where he's spinning across the track and the track kind of dissolves, like you said, into this like this liquid watercolor, you know, looking motif. And in conjunction with the light trails that we see happen a lot in, in the tunnel sequence of the Casa Cristo race, as well as a lot during the Grand Prix itself, what the Wachowskis are doing formally is they're basically showing that speed is going so fast that he literally cannot be held back by the formal space that he exists in. If we're talking light trails, like this is a this is a very interesting way to show, you know, the effects of long exposure in still photography. You know, if they were doing like nighttime photos and, and cars were driving by with their lights on, 
if we shot that in a long exposure, we're going to see light trails that span the entire length of the image because we don't actually see the car itself moving because it's physically impossible given how fast they're traveling in comparison to how slow the shutter is moving. Yeah. So they're doing this in, they're doing this digital effect to kind of mimic what would otherwise be in camera. And then they're extending it to this very, very digital, but nevertheless formal technique of having this dissolve into a liquid, you know, like speed is going, he, he's so he's running, he's, sorry, he's driving so fast within the space that he's confined to that he has to literally break out of it and like turn things to you know melt them he has to turn them to like water to ash just to like to get through them right and 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 kale keegan writes a lot about how just like neo and like what you were saying learns to move through the matrix at a speed unknowable to most people speed does this exact same thing and this is this very much goes into the meat of what Kale is writing on in his book about the like the transness and like seeing trans identities in the Wachowski's oeuvre as as like allegorical trans bodies being of Neo and Speed. They're moving through this this heteronormative cisnormative capitally driven society so quickly. Yeah. And it, they literally cannot be confi- confined to like a three-dimensional space it has to you know it has to break down plastic the plasticity of it has to break down excuse me that's how i should probably word that yeah you know and it's just it's these it's these visual styles that the wachowskis are taking liberties with that really nobody else is trying to do they're really they're showing people just how much fun it is to make a movie and to play with the visuals of a movie beyond you know what standard filmmaking is and and I think this is part of the reason why Speed Racer is just so great. You know, and like you said, drawing inspirations from from the comic book and the manga and the anime adaptation. They're they're bringing these these stylistically innovative mediums to life and, and you know, they're they're making them 24 frames a second. It's uh not to evoke Godard on anyone because I feel like that might uh, that might dip too much into pretension but like this is this isn't truth 24 frames a second this is just bliss 24 frames a second it's just absolutely a, a spectacle and that's really you know what it boils down to it's this it's this overwhelming visual spectacle and you know overwhelming I think to me and to you probably cuz she have in a good sense but you know to some people not so much Honestly, it's funny that you mentioned the whole sort of exposure bit, right? Because I'm just now remembering when Speed first takes Trixie to an inspiration point. They're looking out over the highway, and it is uh, the car's sort of whizzing by. It is a long exposure kind of environment because all you get are these red and white light shafts that are traveling across, like a, along the road. And then here you have Speed and Trixie who are completely unfazed by that, and they're sitting still. So, you know, obviously you don't get like, you know, a sort of pulsing kind of red or white light in the background. But it is interesting that you get two sharply contrasted kind of ideas of motion, right? One is completely still and content. You know, he sort of has everything he needs there. Right on Jim Chimmer in the back. But, you know, he has the Mach 5. He has Trixie. He's sort of navigating where he wants to go, you know, with the whole Royalton deal. And the world is passing him by. But he's unfazed. He doesn't have to sort of, you know, like you said, going back to the, the Kale article, you just... He doesn't have to conform to this idea of speed. He doesn't have to match up to the the pace of the capital world in order to be successful or find himself or you feel content in, right? I think just those little kind of images scattered throughout, whether you want to read into them, you know, too much or not, that's entirely up to you. But obviously, 
the, you know, the Kale reading, it definitely helped the way I look at the film, for sure. And I think that's just one of the many images that sort of point that out. I think I'm, I think it's almost impossible in some regard to, to look at a text like this and not have it be influenced by these kind of like metatextual influences. The Matrix was made before Lon and Lily had either transitioned and Speed Racer, if I'm remembering collect- correctly, was only after Lana had transitioned. So, or no, it wasn't even because I'm pretty sure that they're both credited as the Wachowski. Um, they they still use yeah uh, they're using the brothers at the name. end. So yeah, so I'm so this is they like Lana was on the cusp of transitioning and, and you know actually realizing her own identity and Lily was only a few years out of that. So Speed Racer is distilling probably even further something that the Matrix was getting at. They're just confined a bit by source material but it's very much they're inhabiting their own emotions of reading these things you know in an interview talking about what her inspiration was for resurrections lana i'm pretty sure said the reason that she wanted to make the movie was because of the comfort that thinking about neo and trinity gave her yeah you know and going back to this world and these characters and to make something like speed racer you know, what kind of comfort like somebody like Speed Racer thinking about the Racer family would give you, no doubt was was something that could be conveyed in the same way that the Matrix conveyed these things. Yeah. Right? So it's really, really easy to just say Lana and Lily wear their hearts on their sleeve when they make a movie, but they're really, really exposing themselves and putting themselves out there when they do this. So they're not they're not being very cryptic with things. At least I don't think they are. And like you said, you know, there is a, a quite a bit of deal of uh, interpretation left up to on be- or sorry, left on behalf of the the viewer. But they're they're never they're not really opaque with a lot of things. You know, they're yeah. very very transparent. And that's something I find so admirable in filmmakers especially trying to make studio films. Right? And I know I keep coming back to the studio idea, this financial idea, but I think we what we really have to understand when we watch a movie like Speed Racer as opposed to films that are made more independently that may allow for a more interpersonal or intrapersonal creativity is that you're always going to be answering to someone when you make a movie like this. Yeah. Lana and Lily had clout after Matrix and after V for Vendetta, but they didn't have enough clout, I think, to the point Warner Brothers is going to be like, hey, just do whatever you want. They had there. There was a bit of there was a bit of restraint, and and for auteurs like they are, and I I don't mean to piss off any any anti auteur theory people, <laughs> but for these as authors, you know, as creators, to find every single loophole or every single door which they can break through to to expose these ideas that they're trying to convey is just such amazing art, amazing artistry on top of anything else. Yeah. Honestly, you know, there's just one really insane month. I'm pretty sure you have, you know, your own. So I would definitely invite you to share, you know, your favorite kind of sequence in the film. But I thought like the most insane cut, you know, in the best way possible, you know, Royalton's explaining the sort of formation of the WRL and it's contrasted with Spritel going on this sort of bender through Royalton Industries, right? And I think some people would probably say, oh, it's a way to sort of kind of diffuse the kind of the sheer horror that you're getting you know, from this guy we thought was so friendly, right? Because it is a kid's movie. So you're getting, you're sort of trying to like, you know, lighten the kind of the blow that you get from Royalty and totally turning on speed in that moment. But honestly, you know, watching it through like, you know, fresh, you know, older set of eyes, 
you, the idea of contrasting this candy hungry chimpanzee and this little kid, they're passed up from all the excess that they're consuming, right? And it's contrasted with a guy who, who's sort of, you know, worshipping the sort of ticker in his office of the stock market and this burned piece of metal. This is my religion? That is an insane sort of cross cut to make. And I in like in the best way possible. I was I was fascinated. I was like totally like I was looking at every single corner of the screen, like what did I miss? Because this was like just totally fresh to me on my first viewing. You know, maybe it's sort of elementary to people who are familiar with the Wachowskis, you know, filmmaking already. I was kind of ashamed I didn't catch it earlier. But no, like the fact that you could sneak in these little overt, scathing kind of criticisms of capital in a very blatant kind of manner, you know, using Spritel, who's by all means sweet kid. I think he has his own sort of, you know, beloved place, you know, in the film. Yeah, we like, defend poly we defend poly lit on this podcast. Oh yeah, totally. And yeah, but the, like just you know, just the capacity of using him in this sort of childlike kind of, you know, glee and contrasting with an adult who's kind of deluding himself in a thing and he doesn't partake excessive consumption of his environment. You know, I thought that was a very fun comparison to make. And I think all three agents in that intercut sequence, you know, Speed, Royalton, and and Spritel, and, you know, I guess Chim Chim as well, they're all on this kind of, this high. They're all riding this high. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, Spritel sure. is riding this sugar high, and then he crashes hard. And Speed was riding a high, this, this like, idealistic high of what racing means. And then he crashes hard when Royalton exposes all of the fraudulent, corrupt behavior that goes on in the world of racing. But Royalton is riding his high for most of the movie. He's riding this capital high. And this capital high does not crash until the very end when the, the idealistic chump gets a ticket and wins the wins the fixed race. The, and I say crash is kind of a double entendre for anybody who's kind of putting two and two together of when this movie came out. Because this movie, I'm pretty sure, preceded the 2008 crash by a little bit. So we're dealing yeah, with yeah. a lot. We're dealing with a lot of anxiety about capital uh, around the time that this movie is coming out. So to see this mustache twirling villain like Royalton praise the hegemony of capital and, and and money specifically you know this accumulation of power through industrial wealth yeah is very very it's almost becomes schadenfreude in retrospect because oh, you're totally, like, yeah. it just it absolutely collapses in every way it collapses in the movie and it collapses outside of the movie so i think and and I'm really I'm not trying to grasp at straws. I'm not trying to 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 pull out things that aren't there. You know, Kale writes about this in in his reading or in his uh, chapter, excuse me. And and many other people have written about this. This it's it's wrong to take movies, in my opinion, as texts that exist in a vacuum. What it's not like that the Wachowskis foresaw the market crash and tried to like infuse some of that into the way that capital is treated in speed racer but it nevertheless exists in this pre-crash world and has commentary on it because of that but if getting back to what you asked me like if if i had a favorite sequence of the movie i really really love the the lead up like the prologue to the grand prix when uh, Haruko, I think her name is Tejo's sister, you know, in an act of atonement gives Speed his uh, or their ticket for him to race in the Grand Prix. 
they're like, okay, well, you don't have a car. And then Pop says to Sprite, hey, how long did uh, how long did Royalton say it takes for them to build one of a car in their fancy factory? And, and Sprite says, you know, Polly does this hilarious Latin rig where he's like, 36 hours. And then Pop says, oh, we'll do it in 32. And then you have this amazing montage of the entire family. And when I say the entire family, I mean the entire family is working on this car. Yeah. You know, there's this really, this really cute scene where I'm pretty sure Susan Sarandon like welds something and then takes her visor off to sip some coffee or sip some tea. <laughs> yeah. You know, Christina Ritchie as Trixie is shown welding. Everybody like this is this is like this communal collective effort. Yeah. You know, we have this dialectic between the the individual capital driven industry versus this communal effort to to build this single magnum opus piece of machinery and they do it they do it and they arrive and it's intercut with these with ben burns as a commentator for the grand prix and then it comes to a head when they're like oh something's happening and and the racer family show up to the grand prix and and another okay just i have to say this inspector detector amazing character name like just so so good but you know they have this they have this issue with royalton not wanting them to be let into the race and you know finally inspector detector and the cib are like no you have to let them race and they get in and this is this how do i even word this like this is this is like this catharsis for all of the efforts that the racer family and what they embody mean or what and what they mean you know what the yeah. racer family wants and, and what we want using them as our avatars oh, you know, sorry, we just want... to... oh no you go ahead go ahead if i can like pitch in real quick sorry to like cut you off but i mean even catharsis for you know i think you're getting at this already but all the film's characters i think like one of the most meaningful cuts you know as speed is sort of crossing the finish line you have ben burns cheering him on you know obviously it sort of highlights this kind of, I guess, regret for sort of fixing the race with Stickleton. And even then, it's sort of left ambiguous, right? He doesn't outright confirm it. He just sort of says, oh, people thought Stickleton and I hated each other. And he walks off. But here he is cheering speed on like nothing held back. And there's even, you know, like a one-second cut of Taijo cheering him on. You know, By all means, like they should have no relation after, you know, the Casa Cristo race, you know, and after helping out his dad push the stock price up. But here he is, top of his lungs, cheering for speed to cross the finish line and get first place. I thought that was really heartwarming. But sorry, keep going. Yeah, it is. And, and like to further catharsis even more, like this is catharsis for the every single person in the movie. We not only get to watch speed race his heart up, but we get to see every single commentator in every single language, we get to see this this like digital uh, tapestry of bodies in the in the stands surrounding the family, completely cheer on this single entity of goodwill that exists in this like fraudulent racing hierarchy. Yeah. You know, like speed embodies like every single person in in Thunderhead at that moment, and then this this finish of the Grand Prix, the Wachowskis their visual style literally bursts at the seams N like suture. Everything gets thrown out the window, like literally bursts at the seams. When I say that, like, yes, everyone, that was a terrible pun. I'm sorry, but you know, <laughs> for, for, for speed to, for, you know, to, to cross the finish line for this movie to erupt in this kaleidoscope finish, it's overwhelming visually, but it's also just, it has to be because it's so overwhelming emotionally, you know, this I might get laughed at. It's okay. 
I texted my girlfriend after I watched this movie last night and I said that I cried at the end and she said, seriously, you cried. It's over Speed Racer. The ending of that movie makes me tear up because it's just so amazing. Like, I actually got choked up. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that, man. Because, like, you know, I rewatched I hope the not. scene. No, I definitely, like, rewatched the scene a lot of times. It, de- it gets me teared up, too. I'm a big sports fan. You know, I've definitely been in these situations, you know, with my dad. You know, I'm not no star athlete, of course. But, you know, watching these sort of historic events, you know, these collective moments of catharsis, right? And just happiness watching, you know, someone perform, you know, just sort of to borrow from Walter Benjamin here. But perform in the face of the apparatus, you know, just a full-on display of their humanity, like prevailing against all these exterior forces, how like how is that not a beautiful thing to watch? You know, and the Wachowskis get that. There's no like you know pop song kind of cover popping in at the end to show you how cool this guy is. Like you get it. It's no Giacchino, Giac- man. It's married so well to the in this form. Movie. And Giacchino, yeah. he knows what to do. Like like sorry, I know that sounds super general, but you look at like all of the films he scored, like you know up. You could probably watch the film on mute with just this score on, and you would totally you would get the vibe what every character's emotion is. But just like just for Speed Racer, like okay, if you cried at the end of the scene, like you're not alone for sure. <laughs> this is a spectacular moment, you know, in this the blockbuster a, machine. Absolutely, this is a supportive space for sure, for sure. And I think you know, I maybe it, it maybe it's a bit rude of me to not talk about Gichino or G. Giacchino or Giacchino? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not Michael. sure if I butchered it either. I'm so sorry. Yeah, you'll never, you will never listen it, yeah. to this. Yeah, you'll never listen to this podcast, but <laughs> I'm sorry if I mispronounce your last name. But I don't think I, I gave him enough credit because the score in this movie I was paying a lot of attention to on rewatch. And it's it's really amazing. Like it's actually really, really amazing. All of the the pieces that played during, especially like the Casa Cristo piece and the piece that plays, like you said, during the Grand Prix. It's it's the way that you you said it, it's baked into the form and and it's very much wedded to the use of this and I said this in my let my letterbox review not to like you know toot my own horn but this like this use of narration as like this myth making like we're watching a myth be created like we're watching the process of this and and it's just this in, incredible audiovisual spectacle but I did want to kind of put you on the spot. Because I did like what you wrote about it on Letterboxd after your rewatch. Because you brought up something really, really great, I think, as an intertextual reference. And as I think uh, something that the Wachowskis do really, really well. And it's their use of the, the zebra motif during the Grand Prix. So did you want to yeah. s- speak on that? Yeah, so, you know, sort of actually going back to your other point, I think, sorry, another like really great thing, you know, Giacchino like does well is that he's sort of, he's reiterating the original Speed Racer theme from the anime. And, you know, reworking a piece, you know, maybe, I guess, I'm not sure how hard it is for the average musician, but obviously he treats it with a lot of reverence, a lot of respect. Like, I think in the opening sequence when he's a kid, I think it is very, it it just is a classic theme. I'm not sure if like any like alterations were made to it, but obviously at the end it's about, much more somber like even the caption said you know noble theme of speed racer theme playing but you know that's a nice nod to fans because i didn't know it was from the original show but the fact that you take the time sorry like not to just spit it out again like that's not the intent here it's very much you know worshiping at the altar in a sense to the original right to everything they're indebted to when they made the film but anyway i thought that was an interesting kind of cute little musical note but sort of going back to the zebra one thing that sort of struck out to me is you know speed is sort of hurdling past these sidelines and you get like this sort of i'm i don't know how to pronounce it i think he's just edward it's not i I think i mean if you you could say like edward yeah i mean it's not it's not spelled edward but i I think 
and Professor Kyle used to say Edward. So I'm going to say Edward yeah. Moybridge's uh, Zoopraxiscope Animal Locomotion Experiment, right? You have this horse in profile, seen as like the genesis of cinema. It's a lot of it's these images stacked together, so you get this illusion of motion. And you, I, it was to test, you know, whether, you know, horses, like feet touch the ground when they're in a full gallop, whether there's a point where they're, they're completely off the ground, which I think, you know, on its own is a pretty genius sort of reference to make the speed racer, right? Here's someone... You know who's just leaving orbit, right? He's leaving. Is he Earth. is he going he's fast enough to where his car is not even on the his car is not even on the ground? Yeah, yeah. like that's like you know totally amazing, not on its own. But actually, the other thing I wanted to get at, and I owe this entirely to Professor Lauren Kramer. She taught black cinema, and we took a look at the Moybridge experiments and the idea that there's sort of baked in idea of objectification or dehumanization. Because even aside from the you know from the horses that he was studying, he also studied human portraits too. And a lot of them had this sort of, you know, underlying racial bias just in the way that they were framed. Or, you know, they're sort of, you know, detached from their sort of, not to get too Marxist on you, but their species being that they are, you know, they're put against each other in situations that would, you know, create a, a certain kind of stereotype or not use them to their maximum effect. I hope I'm explaining that right. It's a wonderful reading. Hopefully I can bring it up next week's pod. But it's definitely complex. I'm not doing it justice with this explanation. But it's definitely something I was thinking about. And the Wachowskis don't have Moybridge's sort of distant perception. These are people who are trying to capture human emotion and not human motion. Forgive the pun. But that's very much they're trying to do. They're trying to see how it's externalized, you know, into this very physical form. And the Grand Prix, like you mentioned already, it's already, you know, display of catharsis. But again, I keep coming back to this image because it's so prominent in my mind. But just the track, you know, spinning into this, you know, this Jackson Pollock kind of you know, multicolor, like acid, you know, form, space just collapses around speed. Even, you know, when they have like these close-ups of him, light is like whizzing by, you see the track behind him, it kind of turns into the spiraling black hole behind him. He's going so fast. I've probably said that a million times in this plot, but he's going so far beyond what's expected of him. You know, how could his car not leave the ground there? Right, you know, Absolutely. in this quest to sort of reconcile all the tr- all the trauma's been, you know, caused to his family since Rex faked his death and disappeared. You know, all of these emotions are coming to a head, and the Wachowskis are some of the only filmmakers out there who will properly try to externalize that in this like sincere melodramatic fashion, right? And just sort of, you know, again, I've said all this spiel about the whole Moybridge experiment, whether or not it's intentional. I think the Wachowskis. Probably made it intentionally. I think they're too they're too smart for it to not. Yeah, in some it's way too be, similar yeah. to not be you know a kind of tongue in cheek nod. These are these are some really smart filmmakers, man. For lack of a better term, they are. You, know, you no, they can are. dive into like individual frames, and you can dig so much out of them. But yeah, yeah, you know, hats off to them, and hats off to Kale Keegan, man, because like we we are in debt to you for sure for this episode yeah so much of our thought sorry i keep cutting you off no no i i I was gonna interject yeah but no uh, kale we wrote we read kale's um chapter on speed racer last year as a part of our our film program that krishnav and i are both in um and if i will be linking um there there's an entire version of kale's book available from a quick google search but i will provide a link to that Uh, but kale it really, really is insightful um, in kind of traversing this subtextual, a consistent thread of the Wachowskis filmography. But it's not a book that that stops at uh, just the transness of what Lily and Lana have done. It's also very, very, very astute in like visual observations and whatnot. But I want to put you on the spot one last time. 
because we've talked about this before and we actually talked about this when you and I watched this film last year for class but you wrote something very 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 sweet um, and I really love this I love this observation but it's the very very end of the film when they are on the podium and right before the Grand Prix you know the, uh, just as a callback Sparky says to and and for anybody who doesn't really like Sparky is not related to speed he's just kind of lives there and he's their like head mechanic yeah but sparky says to speed you know i can't wait for that cold milk as a celebratory there's no champagne because it's a kid's movie i think champagne's (laughs) referenced maybe once in the entire movie but they drink milk they have this cold bottle of milk as like this this celebratory reward speed gets up on the podium after his win takes a big swig of milk he's like all these flash bulbs are popping it's this completely sublime scene yeah sparky comes up he's cheering he's cheering they hug and then speed hands off the milk to sparky and for somebody who is very much this gag character like you said i really like that you mentioned like he has this gun pointed up his nose and he does that like typical cartoon character mannerism of just throwing his hands up in the air in in defeat right you know even sparky this side character is given this catharsis he's given this achievement i don't know did you want to say anything about that Hey, man, shame on the people who just blasted this movie when it came out. And Kale Keegan, thank you so much for showing us, you know, the value of, you know, honest, good film criticism. I don't mean to say like, oh, this is an objectively, you know, true viewpoint. But here's someone who really saw value and like what's like so many critics just like snobbly kind of dismissed as a kid's movie. So, of course, you know, breaking from form isn't unexpected. You know, it's a kind of pastiche for them. But no, like there's so much, you know, sorry to make another pun, but there's so much going on under the hood. Why not approach the text on its own terms? And, you know, to anyone who's on the fence about watching Speed Racer, because even, you know, even before reading the Kale Keegan reading, I was sort of, you know, shaky on it. I've always liked the Wachowskis, but I definitely didn't know how to, you know, sit with the visual style. Like, you know, please, you know, expand the palette, you know, expose yourself to film criticism like this. Literally the Scorsese tweet, just like, just like study the masters, expand the palette. absolutely. And that goes for film criticism too, you know, for people, you know, anyway, uh, that's kind of a tangent. But going back to uh, Sparky, man, I think I talked about how, you know, it's sort of a, a deleted scene kind of vibe, right? The idea that so many filmmakers or the studio would say, you can probably cut that out. We need to get a shorter runtime here. Is this really relevant? I'm not sure, you know, what the decision was in the editing room, but the idea that actually I want to circle back a bit, you know, to the sort of spritel and a sort of candy overdose, you know, food? actually plays a surprisingly like major role in the film's kind of mise-en-scene i'm not sure how intentional it was but a lot of the uh, antagonists they have these i'm not sure if it's my tv display or not but they have these kind of visibly you know yellowed teeth right the idea that they've gored so much their bodies you know seeing the effects and you obviously have what's his name block cruncher yeah i think that's his name the yeah. uh, the race fixer right yeah and he has you know a pit of yeah. piranhas and they just sort of eat flesh like on command like it like it happens in a snap right Tejo, you know, they lose the first sort of leg of the uh, Casa Cristo rally. He pushes off this whole sort of spread of salad and food. Yep. And then you go back, you know, at near the end of the Grand Prix, you have this Royalton gala being... Buffet, you know, held, yeah. yeah. Yeah, buffet. So it means a lot. When Spain and gets to, oh, sorry, not to mention one more thing about Royalton. The first time that Royalton comes to the, to the racer residence, mom racer, yeah. Susan Sarandon, bless her heart, offers Royalton pancakes and he says this hilarious like you know off the cuff line where he's like <laughs> German, he's, yeah. he says he says when I when I was younger we said Pankuchen sind Liebchen which I thought was super funny 
Yeah. Because he's like this like caricature British guy and he's like speaking German. Yeah. And he views it and it's And he views it as something that he can just like consume as yeah, a, a, a and make capital. Yeah. He's like, Yeah, oh, I would love to buy you the recipe. And and when Mom Racer is like, I will just give you the recipe. Cause she's, she's like this normal person. He's like, no, 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 no. It has a value. Like everything has a value. So I think, I think you're totally right to bring up food. And I think, you know, this idea of sharing, but also of just food representing, you know, achievement versus, you know, failure as well. Yeah. And just going back to your favorite sequence, you know, when they're building the new version of the Mach 5, you have this Ralton spread. There's like roast pigs and everything. There's extravagant sort of display. And you cut to the racer residence and they're making peanut butter and jelly PB&Js. sandwiches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure people will be like, okay, that was obvious. Why are you pointing this kind of stuff out? But it, it, it adds value to the overall presentation. Like you cannot, you can't not, not see the sort of blatant distinguishment, like, or sorry, just differences between the racer family and Royalton Industries, right? The fact that the Wachowskis take so much time to just hammer this home in the montage itself, I'm obviously going to be like a huge fan. I love montage. I love the Same. way people work with it, but... You know, I think those little nods. And then when you get to the very end, you know, the whole kind of point I was leading up to, you know, Speed takes this sort of chug of milk, but he knows there's no like, you know, joy in just enjoying this for himself. You know, he's sort of getting, being getting his own teeth to sort of yellow at the bit. He's much more content to pass it on to people, you know, who've helped him get there. So he hands it off to Sparky, right? He's mm-hmm. he's not driving, but he's such a critical part of how the Mach 5 works. He's with there, he's there with them. Every step of the way. So I thought that was such a sweet moment. I'm or, so glad no one got to cut it. But yeah, sorry. Keep yeah, going. or even or even when uh, when Speed is stuck um, after um, his little his little tussle with Cannonball Taylor, and like they have that the whole issue with the um, the spear hook. Yeah, and yeah. This is this is during the Grand Prix, and Speed is like kind of just stuck standing still. His car stalled, and you know he's like Sparky, talk to me, talk to me. Like Sparky has always been kind of this like conscious voice over or like th- this kind of like voice in speed's ear to help him along just the same way that pops is and then you know they yeah. cut to pops saying all this techno lingo that really aren't words at all stuff like Bernoulli, the, conver- the conversionator yeah. these transponders like th- these things you could not convince me are words and he's like oh he could do this 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 and this and he could jumpstart the cart in fifth gear and then mom racer is like would speed know that and then she says, would Sparky know that? You know, like these 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 players, these parts are always in tandem with one another. You know, like the achievement of the racer family is so much more than the sum of, you know, the sum of its parts. It's it's yeah. much more than, like everybody plays a role in this film. Spritel, Trixie, Sparky, Mom, Pops, everybody does. You know, it's not, they're not just relegated to these side characters that act as like emotional cushions in times of need. You know, they have they have these conceded bits of agency or, the, or uh, concentrated bits of agency, I should say. I think that's, that's another reason to, to, to have such a, a vast, sorry for the rhyme, but a vast <laughs> cast of, of characters <laughs> and to actually allow them to interact and to just enjoy the moments that they're in, you know, you know, when, when, uh, maybe, maybe some people might view this as an undercut of an emotional moment, but when Sparky is kind of forced out of the kitchen to show that they were all listening, to pops and, and and speed's conversation before speed was going to leave it's also this example about how they're always concerned with, about one another you know it's always this concern about the well-being you know of speed because he's the protagonist obviously but about everyone else you know like everybody is looking out for each other and I, I just really, I, I'm really, really happy that you mentioned that that end bit. And I do, I do agree with you. I think for a film that's like two hours and fifteen minutes, I'm surprised 
that it got the runtime that it did and that it wasn't sort of this film that we're like, oh, it needs to be under two hours like that. You can cut stuff. And, you know, there's stuff that can be cut. Absolutely. There's stuff that can be cut. Yeah. But it it really shouldn't have been. And I'm glad that it wasn't. Yeah. Because there's just so much there's so much effort to to really show relationships as being the, the, the foundation of like success. I think that's and this, the engine. This, yeah, it is. No, it here. actually, it actually is. Like you know, I, this is a very pun-filled episode. But you, I, we should just call this episode "Under the Hood Speed Racer." I really think that would just be. Oh, that's, yeah, on, yeah. that's honestly probably the name of the uh, behind-the-scenes disc of uh, <laughs> of the Speed Racer like DVD set or something like that. But yeah, did you have any final thoughts on Speed Racer that you wanted to share? Because I think we are approaching a, a good time to to close this yeah. off uh honestly one final nod because i feel like you know we'd have missed something if we didn't mention it but just the talking heads man just the tenebris that they have them in like how can you not sort of you know look at an anime and the way they kind of that they move between you know sort of scenes right they use like they use faces as wipes right and i love the sort of panopticon effect you get in the grand prix like all eyes are on speed you know and all the players are flowing kind of behind him right I'm thinking to myself, you know, how come people don't try to employ this more? I feel like it's not impossible. I'm only thinking about this one Hideo Kojima tweet he made recently. I think he's talking about, I forget which filmmaker. Del- oh, George Miller. So yeah, he's yeah. Like he's talking about, talking about Babe. He's talking, yeah, yeah. he's talking about Babe. He's talking about Happy Feet in an entirely digital environment. It's like Kojima, he loves, obviously, digital simulacra, right? He made the Metal Gear Solid series. It does yeah, training. Yeah. It's a big part. And he says, oh, Nolan... He there's a little pot shot at Nolan. It's like you know, unlike what Nolan said, you know, here's what George Miller's doing. And he calls George forward. Miller God. Yeah, exactly. Which is amazing. It's so funny. I mean, like, but, no disrespect to anyone, like you mentioned in that group, but yes, like you know what Lucas was doing as early as the prequels, and what the Wachowskis are pulling off. I think you know with like, like complete you know astonishment here. You know the use the use of the faces as like a you know physical wipe like. Come on, like to every other filmmaker, if you listen to this pod, please, you know, push, push the way we use. The Just try forward. something. Just try, try something. it. Come We're going to love it. Well, if you do that, we'll talk about it on, on our podcast. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. Not to take more pot shots at, at filmmakers and at films as a whole. And I don't really want to create a, uh, an angry mob of people that may potentially listen to the podcast, but <laughs> I think viewing this film as a blockbuster, as like a, a big budget studio production compared to what has become the large amount of studio productions now being like, you know, the superhero comic adaptations. I really, really, and I think uh, going back to Kale again, he mentions this in, in his, in his writing about the origin um, in comparison to a simulacra, you know, if we, if we consider something like the Mach five to be the origin and all of these manufactured simulations of the origin being the Royalton cars, that Royalton wants speed to race in the origin will always be the superior faster model. And I think to view speed racer as this kind of filmmaking origin in a way, and I'm not really, I'm not trying to, to really superficially, superficially evoke Baudrillard, like what is more concrete in the matrix, but the Wachowskis are acting against this idea of, of, you know, a manufactured sensibility to their film. They want it to feel they want the craftsmanship to, to show. They want the originality to show. And I think that that is just a quality that has become so much, uh, or sorry, has become so hard stifled. to find and stifled. And, yeah. and 
that's why I think I love this movie so much. I, I really think I love this movie because I cannot think of another movie where I feel the exact same way. And I, and, and, and I don't feel the same way about a lot of new blockbusters that are coming out. Um, and, you know, the reason I say I don't want to take pot shots is because I do think that there are a lot of repeat offenders of, that, of, of this idea of like a manufactured good. Uh, yeah. Or that a man, that a movie can just be this fabricated good, and I don't think it can be, and I don't think the Wachowskis think it can be either, and that's why they make movies like Speed Racer and The Matrix. Yeah, and so, that's sort of, oh, sorry, keep going. Uh, just you know, so just as a, a, a final thought for me, I'll let Chris Shiv end the, end the ca- podcast today. But the reason that we wanted to talk about Speed Racer, and I think the reason that everybody should watch Speed Racer if you haven't already seen the movie, is that. It is wholly unique. It's wholly unique and it's just a wholly unique experience. Um, so if you can watch this movie, please watch it on a big a big screen. Please try and watch it in as high definition as possible. If you live in a city where you can see it screened, please do. I'm very excited for some time if someone in Toronto decides to, to screen this movie because <laughs> I will be there. I hope um, the review does, yeah. I, that would be amazing. But yeah, that's all I have to say. Chris Schiff, take it away. Well, I know it's a bit odd to sort of conclude a kind of a spoiler pod of Speed Racer with this, but if you have seen the film and you're sort of on the fence, you know, I'll I'll take I'll try my hand at a sort of, you know, Wachowski kind of line here. You know, it's you know, if you're on the fence about watching the movie, it's not it doesn't matter if Speed Racer changes. What matters is if we let Speed Racer change us. Very so good. So please, please watch the movie. That's all I have to say on that. All right, and that's it for this week. Uh, we will see you next week. Uh, again, we're not gonna we're not gonna unveil the film. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it's always gonna be a surprise in some capacity. It has to be. Actually, what I will say is next week's movie is gonna be a surprise to both of us because I think it's I'm not sure it's a film. First we got, time, I, yeah, yeah. Pretty sure this is a film neither of us fun. have seen. Um, but yeah, just uh, go out and watch this movie. I will link the Kale Keegan book or the book chapter um, to the best of my ability. And we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Get that weird shit off my track. <laughs>